Welcome to Healthcare Du Jour, where we dish up and digest the latest in healthcare. For the next 30 minutes, sit back as we bring you insight, commentary, and discussion on trending topics to the table, all expertly served up by our host and his guests. Now, here's your host, Matt Fisher. Welcome back, and thank you for joining as we dive into the hottest topics in healthcare. I'm your host, Matt Fisher. On the menu today is Emily Peters, founder and CEO at Uncommon Bold and author of Artists for Making Medicine. Emily, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, Emily, what I always like to do before getting into the main part of my conversation is to give my guests a chance to provide more of an introduction in terms of who they are and what they do. So, Emily, the floor is yours. <laughs> so, what I do today is I run a healthcare brand strategy studio called Uncommon Bold. It focuses on doing brand work and communications and a lot of engagement work um, with some of the best companies in the digital health space. And that's how we've originally been connected through my work in the technology world. Um, before starting this company, I was part of the founding teams at Practice Fusion and Doximity. That's where I kind of cut my teeth in the digital health world um, and came up there. Um, And way back, I was a sports writer. (laughs) And so it all comes for a full circle because now I have my new book that just came out um, a couple months ago. That sounds great. So what got you into healthcare in the first place? I know you just said you had a couple of states at some healthcare startups, but was that your first foray? And if yes, how did you get into healthcare from the sporting world? It's funny that, um, you know, you think that you're going to do something so different than your parents and you're going to like break away and then you end up, you're like, oh, this is kind of exactly back where we started. So when I first graduated from college, I was a sports writer and then I went to work in some fintech startups. And so I did two startups in the credit space, which is actually really interesting because that the credit world talking about um, data breaches and disclosures and consumer disclosures, like a lot of that's really interesting carrying over into the um, into the healthcare space. But I just randomly found a company on Craigslist um, that turned into Practice Fusion that I started at and I interviewed um, and they were incubating in a larger company. And I didn't realize when I started that there were actually only eight people in that company when I started. And so I went into the office. I didn't have a computer. There was no, like, I didn't have a desk. I had nothing. I had to go back home and get my computer that first day and come back. And that was my entrance into the digital health world. Um, and at the time, you know, that was 2009. Health IT was not a sexy place to be working, right? Like that was a very like weird and old and stodgy kind of sector at the time. Um, And it was really exciting though, to be on that cusp of this becoming like a really interesting and dynamic space, a lot of investment coming into the space. You know, we went through the um, stimulus plan and like the big EHR transition nationally. So, you know, I think probably what resonates with a lot of people is once you do get that taste of working in medicine, in any way, like it's addicting, right? Because for me, it's that combination of it being, you know, there's so much beauty and love love and amazingness in medicine, like so many new innovative treatments and new innovations and working with physicians and nurses, like there's so much goodness in it. And at the same time, there's so many problems and there's, you know, the, the cost and the technology issues and the burnout. And, you know, so like for me as a person who can get bored, like healthcare is the greatest industry to work in because you're never bored. It's always something is happening and changing and different. And there's always more acronyms. Like you can never, anybody who says that they understand our entire healthcare system is like completely lying. (laughs) So I love that because it keeps me on my toes. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point about, you know, saying that you understand Mm -hmm. everything within healthcare is setting yourself up for failure because there's always so many layers. And every time you do one thing, 
there are so many different pieces below it or interconnected with it that you're not, yeah. it's, it's almost impossible to anticipate all the changes that can happen. Oh yeah. And I mean, that's really the history of healthcare's evolution is the, you know, the law of un- unintended consequences, right? That like every time we try to make our healthcare system better, it's like two steps forward, one step back, or maybe two steps back, right? <laughs> like it's such a complicated system and it's full of so many pieces. It keeps you, it keeps you very humble. <laughs> yeah, and kind of a, a minute ago, you mentioned you know, being able to find the beauty in medicine, and you know. Mm-hmm. So, I guess from your perspective, what does that actually mean, and mm-hmm. you know, how do you think it can, you know, those in the industry now or outside the industry can help really promote and get fo- yeah. you know, everyone to focus on that beauty? Oh my gosh! I mean, so my dad always had wanted to be a doctor, and right before I was born. He had gone back to medical school and he was obsessed with medicine, right? He had all the books and his textbooks and he loved, he was a psychiatrist, but he really loved like the pharmacology and the biology side of it. And we would draw, you know, neurons and synaptic junctions and like how the medicines, you know, blocked certain chemicals in your brain. And like, he just loved it. And so I think I was really lucky that I had grown up in that situation where I always had this like deep respect for medicine. And it's a long, long history. You know, medicine is such an interesting field, especially compared to other parts of tech, because it does, I mean, it literally has this 100,000 year history and these deep traditions. And, you know, talking about medical illustrations that are like a thousand years old, right? And and that's a big part of the book too, is looking back at some of that history. And, you know, the first official physician person who's like we consider a physician was an Egyptian who was also the um, vase maker in chief and he was an architect and so like there's this like really just like long complex really beautiful history and then also just myself as a patient you know I had um I had a horrible situation where I almost died in childbirth in 2016 and I was in the hospital in the ICU and seeing you know I think it hits differently as a patient when you start to see the beautiful side of it, as well as the damaging and harmful side of it. But, you know, it's beautiful. Like the, the, the whole reason I'm here is because blood donors saved my life. Like what an amazing, beautiful healthcare thing that you can like take blood from somebody and put it in somebody else. And that saves them. Like, that's so beautiful. Like that's crazy. Um, And so the beautiful side, you know, I think for people coming into healthcare technology, you definitely need to be humble, right, about it because it is so complex. But I think you also need to be appreciative of the history and the beauty and the complexity of it and the, you know, physician-patient relationship and, like, the culture of it. You, you, you know, we've seen so many organizations come in and say, oh, we're going to fix healthcare, right? Like, Google's tried Apple, Salesforce, like, everybody. <laughs> and then you get in, you're like, oh, no, you can't just fix this. Like, this is... This is massive and it's big and there's parts of it that, you know, we should have a lot of respect for, right? And and not try to necessarily disrupt pieces of it, but there's definitely a lot of things that we can make better. Yeah. And kind of to your point of, you know, having that humbleness of not saying, mm. oh, I can come in and I'm going to be the one who fixes this because I'm this new outsider and yeah. constrained by the strictures of the past. You know, I think tying that into what you were describing with the beauty though is, understanding that there is a lot of positive and you actually, you just have to look for it as opposed to allowing yourself to be swamped by you know, the, the troubles or the, the complications that you come across. 
Yeah, it's really, really easy to get demoralized about our healthcare system. Like, why is it so expensive? Why is it so bloated? Why is it full of so much harm? You know, we see that all the time with physicians and nurses and other people leaving the healthcare system and just saying, like, I can't do it anymore. And so I think really like the whole reason I wrote the new book was to try to work on for myself. How do I stop being demoralized? How do I feel hopeful, right, about where we're headed? How do I, you know, really focus on the good and stay to fight? Because a lot of people are not staying to fight. A lot of people are like, I just give up. Our healthcare system is too broken. I can't do it. Yeah, and kind of in terms of being able to find that, find Mm -hmm. and maintain that hope, you know, what is the role of art? Because, you know, obviously I know that's a fo- was a focus for your book is finding those connections. And you also talked about that long history where, mm-hmm. you know, medical illustrations have, you know, always traditionally been a part of medical education. Um, mm-hmm. And even today, if you go into a medical school, you'll see books that are illustrations um, mm-hmm. or, you know, other, you know, which is just a form, you know, I'd say is very clearly a form of art. So yeah. Very long-winded question, but it's back to yeah. the basic basis of, you know, how is art helping to inform healthcare and, you know, how can it, you know, just really kind of promote that feeling of hopefulness yeah. and finding the good? Yeah. I mean, so the book started out really tactical. I just knew a bunch of artists who had been able to create change in healthcare. And I was like, this is interesting because so many people feel really powerless in healthcare. I looked at these artists and I'm like, they seem really powerful. They've been able to do things like Yoko Sen, who's this musician who um, was an ICU patient like myself and woke up in the ICU hearing the sound of the alarms and like, this is horrible. This is not healing to me. This is hard for the people who are working here and went for three years and actually changed the sound of the alarms with a major manufacturer in Europe and like rolled this out across the entire world. Um, and that's to me, like, that's so powerful. Like that's the hardest thing to do is to create that kind of like systemic change in medicine. So I started there, you know, with, with some patient stories and some artist stories of like, these are people who seem really powerful. They seem like they're able to have imagination and have creativity about how we're going to change healthcare. And also that I think artists more than maybe like normal humans are able to sit in the complexity really well and say like, yes, this is a very broken and harmful system, but it also is a really beautiful and amazing and hopeful system. And so to me, an artist is somebody who can be in that paradox and still be able to work and affect change. And then it wasn't until, you know, I was almost done writing the book where I started to see that pattern of, oh, wow, art and medicine have always been so connected, right? Like the very first medicines, and we actually use these colors in the book is, um, you know, coal and ochre. Um, and those medicines are 100,000 years old, and they're also paints, right? So coal and ochre are two like disinfectant sunscreen you know, chemicals that you can use in art as well. And so this whole history just started to unfold of art and medicine always being together. They shared a guild in uh, Florence back in like the Renaissance period where um, the the doctors and the artists would go to the same store to buy their supplies, right? Like they were buying the same pigments and the same materials for their, and they shared a guild. And it's just like really beautiful. I think when I look at the history of medicine, you know, we went through this massive transformation with germ theory, um, you know, 150 years ago, where everything suddenly became very sterilized, you know, white coats, 
you know, sterile instruments. And it saved a huge amount of lives because we learned about germ theory and bacteria and infection. That's great. Let's not like forget that. But at the same time, I think we like overly sterilized a lot of parts of our healthcare system. Um, and it feels like we're at the tipping point now where physicians and healthcare leaders and nurses are starting to recognize that we can have a healthcare system that is a lot more human. It's a lot more beautiful and creative and that there's value in those things, um, not just the sterile environment. Yeah. So it, kind of your description <laughs> of how, you know, the arts and medicine had been mm. interwoven. It's, and, and then talking about how you moved into, you know, the germ theory and then the sterilization, it's you know, mm. kind of, as you said, recognizing that bringing those back together can help hopefully maybe reintroduce the creativity and mm-hmm. you know, the willingness to explore different approaches as opposed to, you know, potentially having healthcare medicine just be viewed as the solitary yeah. silo when it feels like, especially where a lot of the newer developments are going is integration mm-hmm. and, you know, cohesiveness around um, a healthcare journey. Yeah. I mean, so many physicians today still, when I talk with them, they say, you know, I don't feel like I can be a full human. Like, I don't feel like I can have an emotional life. I don't feel like it's, you know, um, professional for me to be an artist or for me to have hobbies outside of my work. That's not a way to live. That's not a way to sustain yourself. Right. And so I think there's a lot in medical culture where we do see it changing, where we are starting to say, you know, your role as a physician, it's okay to be a human. It's okay to have emotions about your work. It's okay to empathize with patients, um, to not have that detachment. You know, um, Dr. Rana Adish is an incredible author who went through a similar situation to mine where she um, she became a ICU patient in her own hospital. And she wrote this book called In Shock. That's incredible. And she talks a lot about how, um, you know, just really changing that dynamic of the physician-patient relationship and really understanding that, you know, when you separate yourself from the patient that dramatically, it's really harmful for you as well as for them. And so I hope that we are seeing really a start if kind of in the way that most professions now we really recognize that if you're a lawyer or a marketing person or or something else like you're not just that you can be a person who has hobbies and interests and creativity and I hope that we can make space for that for physicians and for nurses because you know they're really hurting right now we can't have a functional healthcare system that's full of miserable people yeah no I think that's definitely true you know as you're alluding to there's so much burnout and individuals leaving the industry because of that and for those of you just mm. joining I'm talking with Emily Peters from Uncommon Bold about the intersection of art and medicine and Kind of picking up on that point of you know being able to, the, having to recognize and needing to recognize that we're all human and you know have mm. emotion and that we're rounded people and shouldn't just be focused on our profession. It's you know and then kind of seeing some of the experiences that might have happened during the pandemic. Um, mm. you know, do you have you know any particular examples that you want to be able to highlight of how art really helped to rehumanize and. <clears throat> you know, recenter folks or recenter perceptions around, you know, that balance and the need to be able to have an outlet for, you know, these experiences that everyone's going through. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we learned a lot of lessons during COVID that did not work out, right? In terms of, um, I think one of the biggest issues that we have in our healthcare system today is around trust. We completely lost the trust 
of millions and millions of people um, by the way that hospitals really closed themselves off, that they, you know, did not allow people in. And some of that, you know, it's valid. Like we were in a crisis, like that makes sense. Um, but to the physicians and nurses, like they also lost their trust. Like they weren't being taken care of by, you know, having inadequate access to PPE or being stretched to the limit. Um, and so I think our whole healthcare system has really seen like, we need to get a lot better at communicating and earning the trust of everybody involved in our healthcare system and really showing up for people. So in the book, you know, I think there's um there's a photographer who's a physician who I really love and he does street photography. And he uses that as a way of connecting out to people outside of the the lab, right, where he works and like really understanding that, you know, people are still out there. I think that has to go both ways, right? There's another section in the book where we talk about ways that um, hospital could use color um, as a way to communicate, you know, your, your favorite color is not a HIPAA compliant piece of PHI. Like you could use that and communicate inside of a hospital and the hospital could communicate with you back and could communicate out to the community around it, um, using color. Um, and so there's a lot of ideas in the book of ways that both personally as a clinician or as a patient, you can use art to, to heal yourself, but also systemically what are ways that we could create some systems that that are allowing for trust, allowing for like honest communication? I think there's a lot of dishonesty in our healthcare system, right? Where you go in and you don't know what this is going to cost you. You don't know what this is going to, this experience is really going to be like. And um, I think that that work on trust is something that we need to take very seriously as we continue to kind of rebuild after COVID. Yeah. And it kind of, it also sounds like, you know, that, art being a creative process is, you know, that vehicle can become that vehicle for driving trust because it yeah. allows you to think in different ways and try and, you know, find different means of expression as opposed to feeling that there's only one way that's, yeah. that works or is going to convey your message. Yeah. You know, one of the things that's most revealing talking with physicians um, and specifically talking about the book with physicians is that um, there's an, sort of a sense that optimism should be easy. Like it should be really easy to, to be optimistic about our healthcare future. And I think one of the pieces, the stories from the book that I most appreciate is this idea that it is work <laughs> and it's like a practice. You need to practice optimism and you need to practice thinking about a positive future. And like, what do you want to ask for from the healthcare system? Um, you know, the whole book really started from a conversation I had with a physician named Dr. Stella Sappho, who's this incredible advocate. She's an HIV physician. She um, promotes health equity. She's like on the front lines of everything good happening in medicine. And even she said, you know, I don't think we know what's possible. Like as a physician, I don't think I know even what to ask for. Um, and that was revealing to me because if somebody as powerful as her didn't feel like she knew what could even happen in the future, like that's a problem, right? That's a crisis of imagination that we have. Um, and so in my research for the book, there was a great story from a science fiction author that really resonated with me where he talked about, you know, it's literally just less work to be a pessimist. And so in a movie or in something that you create, like, to create a dystopian future, you just take a picture of what we have today and you break all the windows and you make it look sad and gloomy. And it's like literally less 
effort. It it costs less money to create a dystopian future, um, where to create an optimistic, hopeful future, you have to come up with all these new things and these new solutions and these new images of what it could be like. And it's, it's just more expensive. It's harder work. Um, And so for me, I love that this book is sort of inviting people to acknowledge it is hard to be an optimist, but it's important. And it's important that we all find a way to envision a better future for healthcare. Because if we can't even imagine it, we can't ask for it, we can't make it happen. And kind of from that perspective and having learned or, or being able to hear that lesson, you know, what are some of the approaches that you've taken to be able to maintain your optimism? <laughs> it's hard still, even for me, I wrote the book and it's still hard. So every week I go looking for stories of people who are making positive change. Um, actually this week, I'm going to talk about um there's a, a physician at UCLA who created this program called Three Wishes, and it's for people who are in hospice or at the end of life in the hospital. And I think very affordably, they're able, I think it's like $10 per patient, something like amazing. They're able to do things like, you know, have a musician come in to play music for somebody at the end of life or take somebody outside so they can feel this, you know, the sun on their skin skin at the end of life. And that's so powerful as a physician to have been able to create a program like that, that acknowledges, you know, hospital is a place for dying. Like that's part of the reality of a hospital. Um, and people don't want to die in an ICU connected to all these machines. Like they want to have a an experience that is beautiful and meaningful for them and that she was able to do it super affordably and not add a ton of cost to the healthcare system. Amazing. Right. So I'm looking every day for stories like that and really practicing that. Yeah. So, but again, even with that example, it seems like Mm -hmm. it circles back to what you were talking about before, which is, you know, looking for how do you introduce that human element and remove Mm -hmm. the sterilization and the isolation that, you know, healthcare seemed to industrialize to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, so again, it's talking about, you know, looking at bringing out, bringing out the individual perspectives and feeling back into what healthcare is. Yeah. And staying, staying mad, but in a sustainable way, <laughs> staying mad at like, this is the healthcare system we have, and it is unacceptable in many, many ways. But, you know, you are one person, like you're not going to be able to fix it all on your own, right? Like you can be a voice for good and change. You can be a force for pressure and awareness and just continuing to advance those conversations. And, you know, you can do it in a way that's sustainable for you where you don't just like flame out right? <laughs> because the the weight of it is so huge. <laughs> yeah. And I think also to your point, you know, anger, as you said, can burn itself out. Whereas if you mm-hmm. go and hunt and promote the what's the positive and you know where the stories are that actually bring a smile to someone's face like uh-huh. then it just starts feeding itself because you actually feel great about pursuing that yes. and yeah. if you can be able to focus on those positives hopefully it's you know then creating that pay it forward aspect yeah. to it where people like to feel happy they don't like to feel sad or mad or angry yeah well, and I mean, as so much with our social media and media today is really set up to trigger those harmful emotions, to make you angry, to make you click on something, to make you comment and to flame, you know, your most intense emotions. And um, one of the stories I shared a while back was about a physician who had done research around emotional contagion. And if you can create an environment where, you know, you can be hopeful and you can be positive and you can feel 
you know, moral imagination about the future, that's contagious, just in the same way that the despair and the hopelessness and the demoralized side is also contagious. And so it's not easy. There's definitely a lot of weeks where I feel like, how how is this the way that we're living? <laughs> um, but there's a lot of weeks where I go and I do that work and I see the people who are doing the good work and who are trying to change it. Um, and that brings me a lot of hope. Yeah, no, I think, and I think, as you said, it's important to focus on that, that, you know, as you've said a few times, it's a lot of hard work um, yeah. and you have to keep reminding yourself to go back to where <laughs> the good is, um, you know, kind of thinking about a lot of what we talked about, you know, as you were exploring, you know, kind of the interconnection of art and medicine and some of the historical connections, what was the most surprising thing that you learned? Oh, gosh. I mean, the book is full of so many things that like completely knocked me off my chair. Um, one that stands out to me as a favorite find was, um, you know, the white coat ceremony, right? This is a ceremony that medical students go through where they receive their white coat and they're inducted into medicine. And it feels like this really old really ancient tradition. And you feel like this has probably been going on for like hundreds of years, right? Like this is so old. And I found in my research that the, that whole ceremony was invented in the late eighties in Chicago by this, um, you know, uh, admin in the medical school. One of the professors was complaining that the medical students dressed too casually um, and it wasn't professional. And so she created this program to introduce people to the white coats and it took off like wildfire. And now we just assume that that's been around forever. And so to me, that's a, a real testament to the way that healthcare can change. Healthcare culture can really change very quickly um, with things that are creative and really fit into the way that physicians think about themselves and the way that healthcare works. So things do change all the time, like things change all the time. And so that really gave me a lot of hope, um, that story. And I'm very appreciative of that, the creation myth of that, uh, the white coat ceremony. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting also, because it's, you know, it seems like a very simple thing. So it mm -hmm. doesn't require these big ideas for it to be able to take off. It's, you know, kind of yeah. the current thing of when you have a viral video or anything that goes viral on social media, it's usually an innocuous thing that you would never have expected to actually yeah. off like it did. Right, exactly. It shows to me that physicians can change, medical culture can change, you know, medical education can change really quickly um, when, you know, when it's done in the right way. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's a great point. And then, you know, believe it or not, we're already almost out of time. So I want to part with one final question, which yeah. I think is a great way to build off of what we've been talking about. But what has you most optimistic about the future for healthcare? Oh, there's a lot to be optimistic about. I mean, one that's top of mind right now is um, here in California, we're doing a lot of work around Medicaid reform and Medicaid programs. A lot of states are doing this right now. This is a big motivator coming out of COVID is like we're spending a lot of money on Medicaid and it's not being spent particularly smartly. It's not being done in like a whole person way where you're thinking about a person across many different settings and many different needs. And so that makes me really excited to see because that's a 
that's a big financial reform, but it's a financial reform that's bringing together really interesting players to the table. We're seeing, you know, social services coming in and being connected into public health, being connected into hospitals. And it's a huge, it's a huge lift to try to change a program like that. But I think here in California, it's something like 50% of births are on Medicaid. Um, and so they're starting to roll out things like doulas for women um, who are having their um, pregnancies on Medicaid. Like that's going to be transformative um, potentially. So I'm excited about programs like that that seem really sensible and like really make a lot of sense um, and that are very hard to implement, you know, and are, are massive changes. But um, I think that's a really great place to start. Uh, you know, California, we talk a lot of game about being, you know, a kind and innovative state. And I'm like, let's see, let's see what's hap- what's possible with our Medicaid program, because this is a great testing ground to do something innovative, to do something that's kind, um, and hopefully to really change some outcomes for people. So that's the thing. I think I like to see that hope about a big systemic change coming from a lot of different states. Yeah, no, and I think embracing that challenge for positive change is a great parting message, because as I said, believe it or not, we are already out of time. <laughs> so I want to thank my guest, Emily Peters, for a great conversation today. And thank you to everyone listening. Keep the dialogue going and connect with me at hashtag HCDEJURE. I'm Matt Fisher. Until next time. Mm-hmm.